stay tuned at the end of this episode for an interesting update and correction thanks to a fan of the show. This is the strange and wondrous life of Rick Ankiel. So odd and so moving, it was loosely adapted into a film in 2016 called The Phenom, starring Paul Giamatti and Ethan Hawke. In the 2000 National League Division playoffs, Cardinals manager Tony La Russa decided to start a rookie, Rick Ankiel, in Game 1 against the Atlanta Braves. Years later, according to author Buzz Bissinger, La Russa considered his choice to start Ankiel, quote, a decision that perhaps haunts him more than any he has ever made, end quote. At the time, it wasn't a crazy choice by any means. Ankiel and Daryl Kyle were the only two fully healthy starting pitchers for the Cardinals. There's some irony to this statement, as two years later, Daryl Kyle, at the age of 33, would be found unresponsive in his hotel bed. Kyle died of a heart attack and was the first active Major League player to die during the season since 1979, 21 years earlier. But in 2000, Kyle was healthy and a 10-year veteran. A logical choice. But Rick Ankiel had already proved himself, coming up not only as a top prospect, but as one of the most promising young players in the last decade. He'd secured a $2.5 million signing bonus with the Cardinals, one of the highest ever at the time. And in his first season, Ankiel did not disappoint. He went 11-7 and with a 3.5 earned run average, good enough for 10th in the major leagues. His 194 strikeouts were also 10th in the majors. And he finished second in votes for Rookie of the Year. In Game 1 against the Braves, Ankiel pitched a scoreless first inning. Also in that first inning, he received a gift from his teammates in the form of six runs. In the second, cruising with a 6-0 lead, Ankiel again shut down the Braves. In the third inning, Andrew Jones stepped to the plate. Rick Ankiel took his sign from the catcher. He squared up, reared back, and delivered a pitch low and inside so low and so inside that the pitch got away from the catcher. Ankiel then proceeded to throw four more wild pitches. He'd give up four walks and four runs that inning before being pulled from the game. It was the first time a major league pitcher had thrown five wild pitches in an inning in 110 years, since Burt Cunningham in 1890. The Cardinals went on to win the series, and in Game 2 against the Mets, Larusa again turned to his rookie, who'd again been more than dependable during the season. Ankiel entered the game and proceeded to throw the ball over the catcher's head. He threw four more wild pitches and was pulled in the first inning. The Cardinals gave him one more shot a few games later, and the same thing happened. Just like that. Rick Ankiel's major league pitching career was over. But this is far from the end of the story. The unexplained yips that bring an end to Ankiel's pitching ambitions will also lead him on a wild journey that will result in a situation perhaps never seen in the major leagues and will ultimately highlight the devastating impact of flesh and blood family 
versus the love and healing that can be found in a group of strangers. To give you an idea of how good Rick Ankiel was as a pitching prospect, let's return to an idea from episode 7, Trick or Cheat. In this episode, I talked about sign stealing and how big of a difference it makes if hitters know what pitch is coming. It's night and day. Well, in the minor leagues, Rick Ankiel was so good, his catcher, a guy named Keith McDonald, decided to tell hitters what pitches Ankiel was going to throw. McDonald thought the game was too easy for Ankiel, and he was trying to prepare the young phenom for the challenges of the major leagues. As you can imagine, when Ankiel found out, he was not a fan of the strategy. Rick Ankiel was named by USA Today the High School Player of the Year, and then he was named Minor League Player of the Year. But until his junior year of high school, Ankiel was considered by others and himself as mediocre nothing special. And he didn't actually love baseball the same way some other kids do. In a New York Times interview, Ankiel said he had a Tom Sawyer childhood in Florida, where he, quote, went barefoot every day, swam in the ocean, dove off piers, fished for snook in the Indian River, and put on shoes only to play Little League Baseball, end quote. As I read about Rick Ankiel's story, I recognize the cliché that's been true for millions of little boys, and was true for me in my childhood. The cliché of the overbearing, controlling father, who makes a fun game first unfun, then unbearable. Because of my father, I quit Little League early on. Rick Ankiel would have quit Little League too, but his father wouldn't let him. What I'm about to read is from theplayerstribune.com and it's written by Rick Ankiel, a letter to his younger self. Quote, I want you to promise me that for the next few hours you'll focus on this game that you love so much and just go out and be a kid. Pitch and run and hit and high-five and jump around and just have a blast. Don't think about anything other than doing what you love. You deserve that escape, an experience of pure joy after what went down last night. The screams from mom, her cries for help, the sound of fists meeting flesh, all of it. And as much as I hate to say it, it's looking like tonight might be more of the same back home. So enjoy these two hours, kid. End quote. If Rick Ankiel made mistakes on the field, his father would make him run wind sprints. In high school, Rick's father would call his pitches from the stands which infuriated Rick's coaches. One fan said that Rick Sr. was, quote, a borderline problem. He was always arguing with the umpires, coaches, athletic directors. He was a character in town, boisterous, a drinker, a party guy, end quote. 
Rick Ankiel Sr., in addition to being hard on his son, was also hard on the legal system. Working in Fort Pierce, Florida, Rick Sr. eventually parlayed his job as a fishing guide into the job of a drug smuggler, although crime hadn't worked out for Rick Sr. so far. By 2000, Rick Sr. had been arrested 14 times and convicted 6 times for robbery, concealing a weapon, and more. In 2000, as Rick Ankiel Jr. was beginning his major league career, Rick Sr. was charged and sentenced to six years in federal prison for drug smuggling. And that day of the sentencing, Rick Jr. stood beside his father in court, dependable, agreeable, and loyal. Later that year, Rick Ankiel's parents got divorced. All of this was going on while Ankiel continued to perform at the highest level, which, some coaches later reported, was part of the problem. His junior year of high school, Ankiel sprouted, and his new height over six feet and his new power led to a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. This, along with Ankiel's ability to absorb new techniques and methods, quickly turned him into a fantastic pitcher who began to succeed at every level. But since he succeeded every time, he never learned to deal with adversity. He didn't know what it meant to fail. So what really happened in that playoff game in 2000 against the Braves? Who better to explain than Rick Ankiel? Quote, It will be your coming out party on the national stage, kid. The entire baseball world will tune in to see the 21-year-old rookie fireballer who has been striking out more than a batter an inning in the bigs. And then, man, there's no easy way to put this. It's going to be a rough day. You're going to be staked to a 6-0 lead in the first inning, and you'll be cruising along. Then, in the top of the third, you'll throw a cutter to Andrew Jones. It will be off the inside corner a bit, and maybe a little low. It won't be a terrible pitch, but it'll get past the catcher for a wild pitch. It happens. No big thing, really. Except, for some reason, your mind will immediately go to this thought. Millions and millions of people just saw me throw a wild pitch on national television. Then you'll think about your family watching the game and your friends. You'll think about your hometown and how you'd want it to represent Port St. Lucie and your teammates and the manager who trusted you enough to give a rookie the ball in game one of the playoffs. You'll think about all the people you're letting down. You'll think all that stuff in the span of about three seconds. And just like that, without even really knowing it, you'll be shook. After another wild pitch, you'll walk Andrew. Then you'll throw an even wilder pitch to the next batter, Chipper Jones. That one isn't going to be anywhere close to the plate. From there, it's going to snowball on you. I'll spare you all the details of what follows, but there will be two more wild pitches and four walks that inning. Four runs will score. You're going to be forced from the game before getting the third out and you're not going to know what hit you. It's going to be like, what the fuck was that all about? End quote. Rick Ankiel had no idea what to do when he not only failed, 
but failed spectacularly. He told himself it was mechanics, and he thought he'd figured it out. But in game two against the Mets, the same thing happened, and he was pulled in the first. A few games later, the coaches figured he just needed to find his rhythm in a low-stakes situation, so they put him into the seventh inning of game four, with the Cardinals losing 6-0. But again, Ankiel could not control the ball. What happened to Rick Ankiel is known as the yips. Translation, unexplained phenomenon that leads to extreme performance problems, specifically in throwing the ball. And this doesn't only apply to pitchers. Second baseman Chuck Knobloch was not only Rookie of the Year in 1991, but also a Gold Glove winner, meaning he was recognized as an excellent fielder. After being traded to the Yankees, Knobloch suddenly couldn't throw the ball to first. In 1999, he committed 26 errors, and in one game in 2000, Knobloch committed three errors in six innings. Eventually, the Yankees moved him to the outfield. Second baseman Steve Sachs also suddenly developed an inability to throw the ball to first. This particular type of yips was adopted for the main character in Chad Harbuck's novel, The Art of Fielding. The yips also plagued major league catchers. Both Jared Saltalamachia and Mackie Sasser suddenly lost the ability to throw the ball back to the pitcher. Sasser would start to throw and then clutch and double clutch, and triple clutch, after every pitch. And of course, the yips affected major league pitchers, the first noted case happening to Steve Blass. Blass pitched for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 60s and 70s. He had two seasons of 18 or more wins, and he won both games he pitched in the 1971 World Series. Then, in 1973, Blass lost control. He walked 84 batters in 88 and two-thirds innings, and his ERA jumped to 9.85. He went down to the minors, tried to come back in 1974, but he couldn't do it. His career was over, and his name became synonymous with the yips. The yips was actually a term used for golfers at the beginning of the 20th century, but Steve Blass is the first baseball player reported to have suffered from the yips. Why is this? One answer is that many players never make it to the big leagues precisely because of the yips. From journalist David Waldstein, quote, The number of players with the yips is hard to discern because many deal with it at amateur levels and in relative anonymity and silence. End quote. To make it to the most elite level, you have to be able to master the mental part of the game. But clearly something happens to some of the select few who do make it. So why nothing before Steve Blass? Maybe some contributing factors are our television and free agency. After all, Rick Ankiel did consider the millions of television fans during his panic. And by the 1970s, most baseball teams were televising many of their games, and this didn't exist before. So you have millions more eyes watching and judging. And with free agency, baseball players began to make more money. They were becoming bigger stars. There was more competition, more at stake, and more and more pressure. Another reason Steve Blass may be the first reported case of the yips 
is because players, managers, and owners typically downplayed problems on the field. In the first half of the 20th century, the media was also complicit in multiple cover-ups. They kept drinking, drugs, and bad behavior out of the papers. So maybe they kept the yips out as well. Ultimately, no matter how hard I looked, I couldn't find any definitive answers to the question of why there are no reported cases of the yips prior to Steve Blass. But maybe somebody listening can contact me with some answers. In terms of what causes the yips, there's significant research available. Some culminating event occurs, which starts the mind spinning. And often, the more you try to think your way out, especially in sports, the more you sabotage yourself and increase the panic. From clinical psychologist Mark Oakley, quote, the changes are physiological, adrenaline, heart rate, blood pressure, and then it's that classic fight or flight mechanism engaging. Between the two, the system starts locking up, end quote. One study also links susceptibility to the yips to personality, specifically to players who are more agreeable. And Rick Ankiel was quiet, polite, and wholeheartedly agreeable. After trying and failing to return to the Cardinals the next season, 2001, Ankiel went down to the minors, all the way down. In the Major League Farm System, there are many steps you have to climb to get to the show. For the St. Louis Cardinals, there is the Major League team, then Triple A, then Double A, then High A, then Single A, and then the Rookie League. Rick Ankiel was demoted rung after rung after rung, all the way down to the Rookie League. And this whole time, it wasn't his father he wanted to prove himself to. When Rick Ankiel wrote the letter to his younger self, he said he didn't want to let down the St. Louis Cardinals. Throughout Little League, Ankiel played on teams named the Cardinals. He said, quote, You're just somehow going to keep ending up in a Cardinals uniform. So that's cool. Because the Cardinals have the best fans, bar none, even at the Little League level, in a sleepy beach town on the Florida coast, Cardinal fans are just the best. The parents will have this song. Oh, and Gawa, Cardinals got the power. You'll hear it nonstop, every game, all game long. And it will have you pumped every time. End quote. Later, Rick Ankiel was drafted by the Cardinals and worked his way up through the Cardinal farm system. The same farm system he was just tossed back into in 2001. But Ankiel was not bitter toward the Cardinals for sending him to the bottom. Quite the opposite. Quote, the Cardinals, God bless them, aren't going to give up on you. They'll send you down to the minors, all the way down, Johnson City rookie ball, and give you all the time and support you need to figure out how to overcome your throwing issues. So listen up here. This is important. Do not let that organization or Cardinal fans down. Do everything in your power to show them how grateful you are for their kindness. Take nothing for granted. Bust your butt every single day to get back out there in front of those fans at Bush. End quote. And as Rick Ankiel had time to absorb the stunning consequences of failure, something began to shift. 
By the end of his season with the Johnson City Cardinals, Ankiel was voted Rookie Level Player of the Year, Appalachian League All-Star Left-Handed Pitcher, Rookie League All-Star Starting Pitcher, Appalachian League Pitcher of the Year, and Appalachian League All-Star Designated Hitter. I forgot to mention that in high school, in addition to his pitching prowess, Ankiel was a pretty good switch hitter. So things were going well again. It took him three years, but in 2004, Ankiel returned to his St. Louis Cardinals. And despite a high ERA of 5.4, he walked only one and struck out nine hitters in 10 innings of play. He then had a successful winter pitching in Puerto Rico, which is why Ankiel's announcement at the start of 2005 floored the Cardinals and the baseball world. Rick Ankiel walked into the manager's office and he told Tony La Russa he decided to retire. About this moment, journalist Gary Wailick wrote, quote, He finally admitted to himself that in those few minutes on the mound in the 2000 postseason, his psyche had been permanently damaged. End quote. Rick Ankiel had scratched and clawed his way back to the top, but then, finally, he decided he was done. And this decision lasted all of a few hours, because when Ankiel went home, his life turned once again. From Ankiel, quote, And now I'm at home on the couch, and my agent, Scott Boris, calls me, and he says to me, Are you ready to go play? And I said, Go play what? He said, Baseball. I'm like, What are you talking about? Is nobody listening to me? I just quit. I'm done. I retired. He's like, No, as an outfielder. Would you want to try to be an outfielder? I remember saying to him, You know what? I got to think about this. So I hang up. And finally, I let myself visualize making it back to the big leagues as an outfielder and hitting a home run. And once I felt what that felt like in my mind, I picked up the phone, called Scott Boris, and said, Hey, I'm in 100%. Let's do this. End quote. And just like that, Rick Ankiel was off to the races again. And again, the St. Louis Cardinals supported his decision. Of course, this meant he had to start all over again in the minors, as an outfielder and hitter. Years of more work. But Ankiel had no regrets. In his letter to his younger self, he wrote, quote, Trust me when I tell you that reinventing yourself as an outfielder is going to be a blast. First off, all the anxiety and stress and worry and anguish that you felt as a pitcher will be gone. Completely. It will vanish. Just like that. And from the very first day you make the switch, it will be fun to come to the ballpark again. Make no mistake about it, your bat is going to be your true ticket back to St. Louis. End quote. In 2007, seven years after he lost his skills and his identity, seven years of first retraining himself as a pitcher and working his way all the way back from the bottom, and then starting over again from the bottom as a hitter, Rick Ankiel walked onto the field at Bush Stadium as an outfielder.
again from Ankiel, quote, that first at bat, back at bush, pay attention to your front leg. It won't be easy because the fans are going to go berserk. It'll be a standing ovation unlike anything you've ever experienced. Just a giant wave of applause, and then an incredible buzz that seems to sink into your body and fill up your heart with happiness and joy. I'm not telling you to ignore that moment. Experience it, definitely. Soak it in. But also, in the midst of doing that, just take a split second to look down at your front leg as you step into the box. As you get into your batting stance and put weight on your back leg, your front leg is going to come off the ground and be shaking uncontrollably. Like, really, really shaking. And you won't be able to make it stop. For a split second, you're going to have a thought that will remind you of something that crossed your mind during that playoff outing against the Braves in 2000. People are going to see my leg shaking. Everyone watching this game on TV can totally see my leg going crazy right now. But then, just like that, the thought will disappear. And even after you pop up the first pitch you see, the Cards fans will still clap like crazy. With that applause, they're going to be telling you that they've got your back, that they always did, that you're someone they care about. Seven innings later, you'll reward that loyalty with a moment so special and surreal that it almost seems too good to be true. Two outs in the bottom of the seventh, runners on second and third. At that point, your Redbirds will be up 2-0 over the Padres. A 2-1 count. You're going to take a curve on the outside of the plate and yank it out towards right field. When it crosses over the fence, that stadium is going to go nuts. It's going to feel like you're floating around the bases, and it will all happen so fast, but as you're making your way home, be sure to look up into the crowd. Look at that joy on all those faces. Feel that happiness. They know what you've been through. And at that moment, as you're rounding the bases, it's going to feel like the entire city of St. Louis is pulling you in and giving you a gigantic hug. End quote. Rick Ankiel considered his relationship with the Cardinals, quote, more than special, end quote. The organization, the fans, they stuck by him. They supported him through years of struggle and disappointment. And when he finally returned and popped out on his very first pitch, they cheered him like crazy, and he felt every moment. From writer R.B. Falstrom, quote, Manager Tony La Russa was misty-eyed at his post-game news conference and compared Ankiel's return with Adam Wainwright striking out the Tigers' Brandon Inge for the final out in the World Series. End quote. Remember, Tony La Russa had lived with the regret of putting a young rookie into a high-pressure playoff game that set off the terrible chain of events. Now, seven years later, in an improbable turn, he was able to witness, live, that same player rise from the ashes. La Russa looked on, in real time, as Rick Ankiel's heart was mended. 
In 2007, in 47 games, Rick Ankiel had 49 hits for a 285 batting average. He also had 11 home runs and 39 runs batted in. If Ankiel had played a full season and kept up those numbers, he would have had 38 home runs and 134 RBIs. In the last 10 years, only two players have hit more RBIs in a season. The next season, playing 120 games, Ankiel hit 25 home runs and 71 RBIs. In total, Rick Ankiel played seven more seasons as an outfielder and hitter, and in 2010, he became only the second person, other than Barry Bonds, to hit a home run into McCovey Cove in the postseason. In the history of Major League Baseball, there are a handful of players who've converted from pitcher to position player. Some players, like Stan Musial, Mark McGuire, and John Olerud, were primarily pitchers in college, but eventually switched before the big leagues. Some players, like Smokey Joe Wood, were excellent pitchers until their arms could no longer sustain the punishment, so they managed to hash out a few more good years as a hitter. There is Babe Ruth, an excellent pitcher whose hitting potential was too good to be ignored. And of course, recently, there's Shohei Otani. And Otani brings up an interesting question. If Rick Ankiel would also have trained as a hitter in 2000, would that option have relieved the pressure he felt on the mound, or simply compounded it? We'll never know. What we do know is that in the history of Major League Baseball, there is no record of any player other than Rick Ankiel whose pitching superstardom came to a screeching halt because of a psychological breakdown, and then found a second life as a successful position player and power hitter. Remember, in 2007, Ankiel hit 11 home runs and 39 RBIs in just 47 games. In 2008, he hit 25 home runs in 120 games, which means he missed 42 games. Rick Ankiel's story is unique. He is unique for his talent, his skill, his hardships and perseverance, and also for the very special relationship he built with the St. Louis Cardinals. I'll end this episode with a few more words from Rick Ankiel, who summed it up well. Quote, Anytime you go back, they're going to treat you like a Hall of Famer like your Musial or Ozzie Smith. Not some guy who threw a bunch of pitches over batters' heads for a while in the early 2000s. They will have made you part of their family, the Cardinals family, and it's never going to stop being special. Ever. So if, as you grow up, you only remember one thing that I tell you in this letter, aside from, well, you know, always have a backup plan, let it be this. Show all the love you can to that city and those fans in return. And when the time comes, raise your own kids as Cardinals fans and have a blast sharing your mutual love for the greatest baseball franchise in the world. Then, one day, when they're old enough, and when you're feeling especially strong, sit them down and tell them about your dad and what you and mom went through back in the day and about the yips 
and all the other things that could have gotten the best of you during your life. Tell them about how you never let any of those things defeat you and about how you are living, breathing proof that they can do anything they put their minds to. End quote. That's the show. Again, at the beginning of the show, I said I had an update. In episode 5 on gambling and baseball, I indicated that Peter Uberoth was baseball commissioner and responsible for Pete Rose's ban. Listener David Riojas pointed out that it was actually Commissioner Bart Giamatti who was responsible for Rose's ban. And David, you're right. In March of 1989, Giamatti had already been elected the next commissioner, but Uberoth was still holding a lame duck position until April. And in this lame duck role, Uberoth announced that he'd be investigating Pete Rose. But again, it would be Bart Giamatti ultimately responsible for Rose's ban. And eight days after the ban, Bart Giamatti died of a massive heart attack at the age of 51. Giamatti's second-in-command, Faye Vincent, blamed Pete Rose for Giamatti's death, citing the stress of the situation. And again, the ban on Rose from professional baseball and the Hall of Fame has never been lifted. So thanks again, David, for that correction. And for one final connection... Bart Giamatti's son, Paul Giamatti, distinguished actor, starred in the 2016 film that was loosely based on the star of this episode, Rick Ankiel. If you enjoyed this show and my other episodes, please leave a review on iTunes or one of the other podcasting hosts. I also welcome suggestions for future shows or other kinds of comments. You can find the podcast at my website, midnightlibraryofbaseball.com and you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms. You can also find me on Instagram, Midnight Library of Baseball, and on Facebook. The music is A Long Way by Sergi Pavkin at Pixabay. Good night.